Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode is an absolute treat as director James Samuel spoke about the making of his star-studded Western, The Harder They Fall. James spoke to fellow director Ratman about the power of music, rounding up an A-plus cast, broadening perspectives of the Old West, and the importance of following your crazy. We hope you enjoy. All right, man. So, um, how did everyone enjoy the film, man? Because I know I love the film. Big up, man. I'm, yeah, me. Um, Thank you. Like, me and James are good friends. Like, we speak every day anyway, so this is going to be fun. Now you can just get involved in one of our conversations, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I have got some questions, you know. Some of them I already know the answer to, but everybody don't know the answer. Um, I know a movie like this, was. it was the movie you was born to make. I want to know... What was the process of getting a movie like this greenlit? Because I already know that a lot of people told you you wouldn't get a big budget for an all-black Western cast type movie. So how did it go from your brain to the paper to the big screen? Um, and you done the short. Was the short a way to just get to the feature? Yeah. Was that all part of so overall how many years? And you know, what was the process? <clears throat> the movie uh, uh, that we watched has been in my head for like 15 years, right? I mean, I come from Harrow Road, like Mozart State. So I remember I was on Kilburn Lane and I, and I was like, man, I'm going to do a Western. I was with my friend Tony Tago. I'm going to do a Western. He went, who's going to be in it, James? I'm like, everyone. Everyone's going to be in it. That was like 15 years ago. And then, then 10 years ago, uh, I wrote a short film called They Die By Dawn. And I put everyone in it at the time who was, it was a short film, but it's still quite a lengthy short. It was like 45 minutes or so. And I shot it in, in Hollywood. I funded it myself. I flew over there. I cast um, the late Michael K. Williams, um, Erica Badu, Rosario Dawson, Gene uh, Carlos Esposito from Breaking Bad, Gus Fring. Like, just all of these amazing, amazing people. And it was almost like, not a proof of concept of the, of the film, but a proof, but proof of that we existed in that space and time. Because growing up, I love, I love cinema like everyone else, everyone here. And I love westerns, right? I love them. But westerns are always shown, we're always shown westerns with, through a really narrow um, viewfinder, right? It's like really white male centric. If you're a woman of any color in, uh, in the old west, you're subservient, super subservient to whatever male storyline is, is going on. Think of Unforgiven. That's a wicked film with Clint Eastwood. To name any female character, She's a prostitute in the, in the entire movie, or or uh, pale rider. He he just walks in, drags the woman to the bar, to the shed, rapes her, and continues with the storyline as if <laughs> nothing happened. And if you were a person of color in any of those films, right, you're treated as less than human, or um, or uh, subservient would almost be a compliment to how you're treated. So as you get older, I I love the genre so much. I want to see my own. Um, I want to see my own reflection in it. I want to see people that, that look like me. And every time someone looks like me, they're, they're even Westerns that we can all name of, of recent, like they'll have to give some slave background to them. And it's... And what, yeah, I want to go into that, how you didn't put no slavery, you didn't say the N-word. Yeah. That. But before we go to that, but you if, had if the idea. So yeah. how did you... UK, you, you didn't like the way they portray us in Westerns. So you yeah. done the strongest <laughs> Western you could think of. But how did you get it greenlit? So I, well, I wrote it. Those two first, words. Yeah, I had to write it first, right? So I wrote a draft. How long did it take you to write it? I don't know. I took notes. I, don't, I did like a script. I probably took notes for 
six months. So when you so. say notes, is this why you're attached to a studio or is this when you're no, writing no, no, independently? No, no. All, so who, who was giving this you your notes? This is actually all Kilburn Lane Productions. That's right. what I'm saying. So you got to make people so, know it's still so independent. I'm taking, yeah, I'm taking mad notes. Um, who? For about who? six months. No, me. You're, you're, just, oh, you're yeah, editing yourself. Right now, yeah, okay, I've, I've been editing. reading about, uh, about these characters for all my life, right? So taking mad notes and then, and then, um, and then I wrote the script. The script probably took like a month and a half, the initial draft, two months. Oh, wow. You, I thought yeah. that's now. Then, then, is then it then anyone else that writes slow? He's just fast. <laughs> no, I mean, just the more the more you know, the more you know, the more the quicker it is to write. Uh, and then I flew to LA and I'll just be like, I knew that I needed almost like a super group because all the studios, everyone was telling me this movie would never get... Um, uh, greenlit, right? You'll never be able to do. There was a guy from <laughs> Studios, right? I never say his name in interviews, but his name is. And he's Italian. We don't like him now, guys. And he goes, My wife says, so she would verify. He goes, He goes, um, um, James, you will never make this movie. This is how he talks. <laughs> you will never make this movie. I go, Why? He goes, It's too big. It's too big. <laughs> and he wanted to do the movie. He went, Take five million. Everybody wants to know five me. Million. He goes, everybody wants to know me, but you know me. Take five million, five million, do a small film. And then if it's successful, take another five million, do a bigger film. If it's successful, and four five films, five films down the line, you could make uh, The Harder They Fall. He told me this That's in crazy. in London. That's crazy. That's I was crazy. like, really? Well, thank you for the five mil, brother, but That's I'm crazy. magic. That's crazy. The Harder They Fall is my first movie. It might take me a little longer. And you know what? My wife will verify an hour before the teaser, before the teaser dropped. Because that teaser, we kind of stormed the galaxy with that teaser trailer. Yeah, yeah, it was cold. It was cold. An hour before it dropped, I was in LA. It dropped at 6 a.m. LA time. I was up 5 a.m. I said, he always calls me bro. He goes, bro, bro, bro. 5 a.m. I sent him a text message. Bro, 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 bro. bro." I went, pay attention. to. I didn't tell him where to go. Just pay attention to the internet in one hour. Oh, wait, wait, before I jump and off. And he dropped and he was like, bro! Wait, wait. <laughs> wait, I don't know if he's allowed. Are you allowed to say what the budget was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they offered him five million. Let's, we're jumping forward a little bit, but what was the budget you ended up getting when you was patient and you got what you needed for the film? What was the budget? The film we see there is like about 90, about 90, 90 million. 90 million, they told him and, five. And technically for the first movie, it's kind of... Technically for the first movie, it's kind of what? Bro, I didn't get it for my first movie, bro. I know, I know. But, but I would say that that I mean, it kind of it kind of um sounds crazy, but I I think in life the universe awards you that which you're you're aiming to do. If, if you're definitely going to do something, I don't think even think the universe has a moral compass. If you're definitely going to do something, it just kind of provides. Like I needed to assemble a supergroup to get this done. So I was like, hmm, okay, Jay Z, you can't really refuse. You got Jay Z, yeah, but you still had to get Jay Z on board. Yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's so many questions I've got. I, I don't want to, I don't want to sit too much on there because there's so many I want to say. Yeah, all right, all right. Okay, as a first time director, when you're working with A list stars, yeah. So I want to know how did you get this cast, and how was it to tell Regina King do it like this when she's like, look, I've got an Academy Award. What have you got? And how was it to tell Idris, no, Idris, I don't like the way you're saying it. It's like, bro, I've been acting for like 10 years. This is your first movie. Like, how do you direct A-list talent when you are a first-time filmmaker and deep down, they're looking, some of them might look, but was any of the actors like, 
you don't have the experience I've got, so I'm going to do it this way. What do you know? Like, how was it? Like, what was the process? Like, let's start with how you got them. All right. Um, first, Idris and me know each other from the street, right? From London. So, for me, there was no version of The Harder They Fall without Idris Elba. And he right? killed it, man. So, for me, it was Idris was always going to be going to be um, in it. And then, then the next person to get was Regina King. But Regina's agent was just supportive of this movie. I've, historically, I've never had good luck with agents. I pretty much find out where the actors live, literally, and fly to their house, go to their house. I, I don't know if we should follow that route, guys, but sometimes no, but you got to do what you got to do. I just think someone knows someone, right? But then, but then uh, Regina's agent, Laurie Bartlett, is awesome. And, um, and um, she put me and Regina on, on the phone. It took ages to get Regina on the phone. And I knew with Regina King, with everyone, you got like 10 seconds to make a first impression, right? They, people make up their mind who you are in like 15 seconds flat. So the phone was ringing, the FaceTime, and then she came on. And as soon as her face appeared, I was like, peace to the black queen, Regina King, what's cracking? She's like, oh, hello, okay. And then I just, I just got a good way of explaining my madness, right? All the stuff that's in my brain. I believe, oh, I believe when you're creating, obey your crazy, right? Number one rule, obey your crazy. All the things that's in your head, obey them. It will take you to the to Nirvana. And what happens is people around you or people that you're working with that don't obey their crazy will try to dampen your creativity. You'll have an idea like the blue lady in the saloon. Monday's child is ever smiling. <laughs> Tuesday's child is dead. So, so I would just explain everything that's in my head to every actor. And I believe that great artists want to make yeah, I agree so with that. Just all and, and I suppose once you get one good person, another person's kind of like, who have you got? Then you tell them that person. Yeah. And plus, you're telling them the story. So I suppose that once you get the first, it makes it a little bit, little bit easier each way down. Absolutely. But also, Raps, in answer to your to, to your main, what I thought was your main question. Yeah, the main question, yeah, was, it was. It how, was like, how did how yeah. do you direct? I remember watching um, Inside the Actors Studio, right? When I was a kid. And Sean Penn was on there speaking to James Lipton. And James Lipton said to him, what do you look for in a director? And Sean Penn said one word, courage. Courage. I was like, mm, as a kid, and I didn't even know what he meant by it. But I understand it now. Like, I'm directing a, a piece. There are no, there's no such thing as A-list. Firstly, when you're making a movie, everyone is A-list talent, even the people in catering. Mm. Because every single person there is there to get that movie done. Mm, so no true. one, so the background actor, imagine the Everyone's important. Scene, when he shoots the guy, that calls himself James. That guy's name was not James in the script. What's your name? James. I can't. His name is Zeke. He kept saying James. I really wanted to strangle him. But imagine <laughs> if you're talking to that guy and there's no background around. For me, everyone's there to make everyone a, plays their part. Everyone's there to, to make a movie. And then yeah. if you're if you're captain of that ship, then you have to kind of just just captain the ship. And was was there anyone? Did any of the actors ever try? You don't have to say names, but did any of them try to, you know? test you like like you know I ain't got confidence in you you know I don't you know did anyone try to push you to the limit and try I to mean, talk I down can, to you like to say you know no like I come from um Mozart State <laughs> like what like no I'm just saying like uh, in it just watch with regards to okay Idris would do Idris would go Idris is really mindful about the suggestions and he's really protective over the artistry so Idris would do this and we'll be we'll be chilling in the evening at the house because I I scored the movie as well so I've been making the music in the evening and then and then 
Idris will come by and we'll be doing the, he'll be watching me doing the music. But in the daytime, he'll come to the set and he's really like, uh, in his, hey, and he's Rufus. And I don't recognize that guy, but he'll do this. He'll go, boss, boss. And he'll make a point of calling me boss. I don't know why, but maybe to tell himself he can, he can settle in and just take um, direction. I like he'll, that. But he'll, he'll say this. Boss, boss. I might tell my cast to start calling me boss now. No, that's he, go, he go, hey, boss, boss. <laughs> is there a world in which, like Wiley es- the Wiley Esco scene when Idris fights the guy with the gold teeth, Wiley doesn't hit Idris first in the script. Like no one hits Rufus Buck first in my script. Not my vision of Rufus Buck. And Idris would go, boss, is there a world in which Wiley Esco can hit Rufus Buck first, can hit me first. See, I love, what I love about that is that he's asking. Yeah, but watch this. I'll be like, no, there's absolutely no world where he goes, boss, just listen, just listen. Just listen, right? Right? Look, if he hits me first, it's all about gradients. If he hits me first, like, I'm like, nah, man, this is Rufus Buck. My ultimate bad guy until you find out at the end he can't hit you first he go boss look is there a world now when Idris is saying is there a world basically he wants to change me. I'm like I'm like hey, look can I at least show you can I at least show you can I at least show you I'm like alright 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 show me but my head's looking you know the kid that doesn't want to give you his any part of his packet of crisps he's looking on the ground he's looking at the <laughs> show me this show me and so, Wiley Esco, Dion Cole comes over and he goes, all right, show me what we were working on. Wait, so you mean to me I'm not already working yeah. on this You're making your own movie. He's not hitting you first. He goes, look, look, look. And he takes his, takes his, takes his um, uh, gun belt off. And as he does it, he turns around and Dion goes, whack. And, and Idris, as he's standing there, he goes into full character. He goes, now he's only showing me an example, but he goes, Whoa, that looked like it really caught. <laughs> and, then, and then he takes the gun, he's like, whack, whack. I love that scene. Whack. That was a sick scene. <gasps> Let him hit you first. Yeah, Let you see. To that's so, dope. See, to have someone so like just like that. Yeah. That was dope, man. Okay, that leads me on to my next question. <laughs> I, I was wondering how much creative control did you have like when you're sending these dailies to Netflix are they messaging you back like you know James you know we don't are they, are they giving you stress and when they didn't agree with something how was you how did you take it you know I want to know what, the, not, what the any, notes like have any of you guys um, made a film with Netflix in here I'm working with Netflix now it's but we ain't shut yet it's a really crazy thing when you guys work with Netflix it's gonna be re- it's really hard to go into the studio system afterwards because Netflix is almost like I think because the format and everything is so new they do kind of spoil you or they just they just like collaborators there was like so we didn't get any hard notes like a note which has to be um uh changed and they okay for instance I was doing things like my rule as I told you, is obey your crazy. So the script says, I turn everything on its, on its head in this movie. The script says, Maysville, that's a white town. 
but the script had nothing about the description of the town. But when I'm making the town, I'm like, hmm, I want everything white. <laughs> then I got a call from Netflix, right? I got a call from Kwame Parker at Netflix, who was in charge of the budget. And the budget was expanded <laughs> exponentially. He went, James, look, we think your appetite has grown. I mean, my appetite ain't grown, Kwame. He went, James, look, what you're, you're doing stuff here. I knew I was going to get a call about that white town. Because even the ground is white. None of it is effects. The ground. They shipped in white gravel to pave the ground white. Crazy. That is and crazy. He went, and Kwame went, Kwame went, James, your appetite has grown. Do you want to, shall I pull up the script? I went, it ain't grown, Kwame. He went, James. And he got loud. He went, white horses, James? You want white horses? There are no white horses in New Mexico. <laughs> I didn't say I want New Mexican white horses. <laughs> Shit, this horse is so Kwame, look, man, I know what I want to do with that white town. It's going to be mad funny. Because people just think white people, black people. I just wanted to turn everything on its head with this with this movie. You don't hear the N-word once. And then, uh, and then Netflix, they just kind of, he, they kind of just kind of give you that, for no exec, the execs are like your, your homies. It's Kwame. It's, it's just, just and then you're, every studio ain't like that though. So it was, it, was a, it was a, it was that must have James Lasseter, who's Will Smith's partner, who's, who's my partner on this production wise. He was like James. I've never had this much freedom making a movie. So you say you got final cut? And I wouldn't say it's final cut, but it, we didn't get any hard notes. Okay, what about internally? You're working with James Lasseter, who, if, if those who don't know, he's done nearly every single Will Smith movie plus yeah. so many hours he's a well-known established producer yeah. when he comes with a note that you don't agree with how did that get resolved well, did, he, did Jay-Z Jay-Z being a co-producer did he side with the, the you know the experience or did he side with the crazy you know who? No, how it's was a, it like? it's an odd thing because James Lasser's as crazy as me so really it's me me Jay, Jay and James so there won't be notes but there'll be things like me and Jay had this me and we call him JL right James Lasser we had this debate through the whole um, script making um, script process, that he was saying, Nat Love will go into that mansion and kill Rufus Buck immediately. There'll be no time for conversation. I was like, no, he won't. JL was like, he will. He will. He's killed his parent. Like, he'll kill him immediately. I'm like, he's not going to be blasting him immediately. James Bond's enemy don't kill James Bond immediately. He, gives it, he waits for the bars. And, 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 and I remember we were we were at a kind of um, stalemate. So who was it? Who was Hove? Was it two on Hove, went, Hove went. You see, because you know Jay's voice is is high pitched. It's kind of like it's high. It's like it's aspirational. Jay Z was like, you see, you guys are having having an argument because because you've never been in that situ- scenario in real life. <laughs> Here's what would happen. <laughs> he goes. He goes. He goes. The reason why Nat Love ain't gonna shoot, because Rufus Buck has his back to him. The guns is down. He's nursing a drink, and he's talking to him. At which point, Nat, being a man of dignity, he's gonna say, "Pick up your guns and turn around." That was Jay Z. That's why Rufus Buck was able to get all that dialogue out, right? And and thing like Nat Love, pick up your guns and turn, pick up your guns and turn around. But that wasn't in there till. Jay, but we That's never right. had, we never had, oh. none of it was a, you assemble the right team, you never have like a clash of um, heads. It's literally just like being at home with your brothers and your sisters and, and your friends and you guys just having swordplay over 
overseas. It was just mad fun. That's dope, man. So another thing, I don't know if you're allowed to say names, but I know that when you was about to start shooting, you had a lot of cast changes. Like, I don't know, you had COVID, you had the COVID scare, right? So and is that when you lost the cast members? Well, we had a, a couple couple cast um This is before changes. it started yeah, shooting. Right? You're not allowed to say names, because I know there yeah, were some yeah. great actors attached. So when you, I don't know if you're allowed to say, I don't want to get you in yeah, trouble. Yeah. But when you lost these actors that were massive names as well, yeah. and you, you were set in your head, I'm about to start shooting with yeah. this actor and this actress... Did you think it all hope was doomed? And was you surprised when the new cast came in? And did they were they better than what you had originally? Well, incidentally, me and you were speaking over that time, right? Mm. Okay, so they say obviously we're in, we're in, we're all in the in the UK. I'm not sure. I don't think we're all from the UK here, but we're all in London and we're all like in film and we're all making um, films. So we'll be reading about this Hollywood stuff for a hundred years, and I'll always read this thing called Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong, right? Murphy caught COVID and died. There is no Murphy's Law. That thing should be called COVID's Law. The day before we were about to start filming, my friends, the day before, there was this worldwide attack called the coronavirus and we got shut down and Idris Elba caught, caught COVID. I didn't even know what it was. They said at that point, you can catch it from touching. Remember when you couldn't even buy sanitizer? Yeah, yeah. And crazy. Idris had bought me a guitar, right? The shop that Idris bought the guitar from in New Mexico closed down. It literally closed down. Idris, it, they plastered. Idris Elba was here. We shut down. I, I never even touched that guitar. I thought the guitar was full of Corona virus. Like, <laughs> I was playing those chords, and then, um, and then so we were all we were all in Santa Fe, right? But at no point did I think I'm not going to make the movie. Again, I I came I started in Kilburn Lane. So to be in, you're seeing the sets. I know I'm making making this film. It wasn't a bunch of cast. It was just like a couple of changes that we lost. But even through then, I know that the end product. I would just my brain would re, re, would um, revert to particular things I've heard people say. Like when Robert De Niro had his um, directorial debut, A Bronx Tale, and he said. They asked him at the press, at a press conference, what was the biggest lesson you learned? And he said, the biggest lesson I learned was, it's all going to work out in the end. The movie kind of makes itself. Mm. You you make that. You're, you're there to shepherd the ship, but the movie is going to make itself. It's going to take all these twists and turns. And what you have to do is make like Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Hold. Hold. Coronavirus. Hold. Idris coming out with COVID, hold, and you just go to you just go to um, war and make that film. But see the fact that you made a movie during the pandemic because you've never made a feature before. Was it just this is just how you make a movie? I'm assuming, or do you think it would have probably been harder if you'd done four movies in normal times that were smooth, then came to this one? Would I, you have noticed it, or because you just I'm making my movie? Okay, this is that was it. it. Like nothing was as it was meant to. So imagine like I'm gearing up to shoot my first movie and I'm scoring it. I compose all the music for the movie. I wrote and produced every single song on the soundtracks. When you're hearing like Lauryn Hill and this and that and the other, and I've done all this prep for this child of my. You know when was it Guns N' Roses? Oh, sweet child of mine. It's a sweet child of mine. And then this alien attack hits. It's an alien attack. It's a virus, right? That does not want you to peep this about COVID. It doesn't want you to get sick. Because if you get sick, you stay in your house and it can't spread. This dish is like John Carpenter's The Thing. It's the craziest thing ever. So, so for me, 
I've done all this prep and I'm going in like a G. And when you're turning up on set, you've written all this stuff and I want the sets to be, I want Redwood to be colourful. I want Douglas Town to be gully. I want Maysville to be all white. And then you see all the horses coming and all of me, and it's all playing in your head. And then you get shut down, right? And when you get back up five, five months later, you're told, okay, so here's how you're going to do this movie, James. You have to wear a mask at all times and goggles and a face shield. It's great because COVID was new, right? You thought you can just catch COVID. No one can sing outdoors. I'm like, but they got singing outdoors. Upon my return. No, they can't sing outdoors. And you can't stand closer than six feet to your actors. What the hell kind of movie is this? 2001 Space Odyssey? We're action. What the hell? I can't do this do this joint. But then I just thought, look, it's my debut feature. I've never done a feature film before. So you just show me the parameters and let me go make my, make my movie. It's like learning to drive in a Mini Cooper or Lamborghini Diablo. If you can't drive, you can't drive. I want to know as well about the rehearsals, man. What was the rehearsal time like? like did that, would you say that made a massive difference in the performances you got? Like, do massive. you feel like a lot of actors came in thinking, I don't know, this character's that way. But then after rehearsals, you know, it really, it made everything. Like, would you say yeah, it's necessary? Because um, people, fortunately, not everyone here, but say a couple of people prior would, would, was acting what I call cowboy acting, right? People think that when they're making a the cowboy movie, everyone has to talk super slow. And that wasn't even true in the cowboy movies. <laughs> Only two people spoke slow in all those cowboy movies. Like John Eastwood. Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah, because that's how they speak in real life. But the other people <laughs> behind them in the same scene will be talking like that. Okay, we're going out. So I have to, uh, so, but I would say that the rehearsal period helped, but not as much as COVID. It's an odd thing. COVID gave everyone more five time. months yeah. more of cowboy school. See, see when Jonathan Majors is, firstly, he was like a cowboy anyway, but when he, we had no stuntman for Jonathan. He's galloping, no hands. That's crazy. Full speed, shooting on target or RJ with the gun spinning that's all all him but then so he was practicing he was wicked before COVID hit and then COVID hit this guy was sending me uh, videos on his roller skates backwards you know them you know them does that roller skate backwards I don't understand why they do that I can't roller skate but they do this (laughs) what type of roller skate and he was like you know (laughs) and he was doing the spinning of his guns and so everyone had like five months extra of... of That's dope. You see, that was a blessing shoot. in disguise. And exactly. And when we got to shoot, everyone was just cowboys, like with their guns. I, I remember trying to shoot, trying to cock Zarsi's, Seishoch Miri's shotgun. I couldn't cock it. And the guy was like, no, James, you can... The gun <laughs> trader, you can cock it, the prop master. You can cock... I mean, I can't... It's broken. And Zarsi didn't... No, this conversation was happening. She came in to get her guns, took the gun, took the shotgun from me, cocked it, checked the, checked the shells, cocked it back and walked out. I was like, wow. Oh, yeah. I was trying to... So I think uh, uh, we got extra time in, in cowboy school and, rehe- and my rehearsals. I play music in them. I do all different types of stuff. So That's dope. Absolutely. So tell me, look, the music of the film is crazy you know like and you wrote all the songs obviously minus the verses from the rappers you've wrote the hooks you wrote the you know you've wrote you produced the whole thing so 
was that ready before even one camera was rolling? And did you have that months ahead? Did you write the script and decide I need the music? Like, like how long ago did how early did you have the songs written that you well, knew? With, with score, as I'm writing the words, as I'm writing. The script, so you scored it. Yeah. You wrote the music. You done everything. Music in that movie is yeah, you. Everything. Well, I don't know how much Netflix paid you, but they got a discount. They got a discount. So, when, when I'm writing the script, I'm also writing the score. Right? It's crazy. I'm writing score. And you, you know, like um, words are melodic. Even when we're speaking, there's a melody. Right? It's a chord and it's a melody. And so I hear. Uh, it's almost like I I um I see music and I hear film. And I'm kind of like doing both at the same time. But in some songs, weren't weren't written like because they'll change like the song that the singer Alice Smith sings in Trudy Smith's saloon that month, that Wednesday's uh, uh, uh. and she's singing about slavery I wrote I that, that song scene. like That's two cold. days before mm-hmm. before the scene and Netflix kept asking me look so what's going on going on in that scene and why is that lady blue like people kept asking why is lady, <laughs> lady blue and I, remember, I just remember like directors that I admire right or that I watched growing up I remember Ridley Scott used to say, don't ever ask me why, just ask me how. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna use that as well. In, in general, um, so the song that is sung when we walk into Trudy Smith's saloon is about slavery and what happened when the ships came, where we were and then the ships came and then they took black people and then they took them to wherever, all around the world. And she's singing it in like days of the, days of the week. The blue lady, the blue signifies the sea, the middle passage. And her dance signifies hope over these words, these haunting words that um, that is being sung. So I had a whole um, uh, story in my head for it. Not that, the, not that the public is meant to get, but I believe that if you have these biographies, even of songs, yeah, you might not, the audience might not read it, but they'll feel it kind of like you'll still, you'll still feel it. You might not like Bob Dylan's, you might like Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower more than, Bob Dylan's, but if you hear Bob Dylan's original, you can you could still feel something where he was coming from, and I believe like music is is um is heavily is heavy like that as well. And also, I wanted people to celebrate the score. Like I, we don't celebrate music. scores like we used to do. It yeah. was crazy. It weren't, it weren't like what I've seen before in a film. Like the music was it was just powerful, man. There was musical. There was a musical element to the movie that you could have it. You could run it as a musical with some some yeah. That's what they say, and I thought that was dope. Um, let me go back to where one of the shots that I really like. Yeah, there's a shot where Idris is in the tower over his shoulder, and then he looks. He's looking down, and you see Jennifer Majors on the on the horse. How did you do that shot, bro? Like that shot there was. It was just. And it, it was it wild, like, bro. It looks like a CG. That's a practical... Bro, it um, just looked cold. So we built that whole mansion. Like, the, we didn't shoot on any sets. Everything's on location. We built those. We The town was already there. We obviously we painted the town and done it up. And then we built that mansion from scratch. When we were building it, I was like, that's my... That's why I say, oh, babe, you're crazy. Like, when you're storyboarding, all the shots that's in your head, like, like uh, put down the gun, boy, we kill everybody on this train. I said, put down the gun. All of those things I'll, I'll work out. And I wanted um, that particular shot. If you watch the film again, Rufus Buck and Nat Love never ever share the same frame until Rufus Buck says the word at the end and the sun and he walks into Nat Love's oh, frame. Hey, that's it. I never noticed They that. never share the same frame. And, and that particular scene, I shoot Rufus Buck static and I shoot Nat Love in um, steady and then handheld. 
as the information becomes more um, crazy. But Rufus Buck knows what's happening. He's in full control. So he's stable. He's stationary. His camera's stationary. And that love is like a, like, what the hell? And then they, then they join. The only other time they technically share the same shot, but not the same frame, is in that shot. I wanted to show the distance between them, right? Okay. To show not the distance between them on the street, but the distance emotionally. But to introduce them in the same shot for a split second and just show how far apart they are. And then in the end, show how close, how close they are. And so I rigged the cable from the back of the mansion the right back of the of the mansion, Idris standing in the window, and the camera goes along the cable like a zip wire. Yeah, that is sick. Right down to the bottom. Yeah, of the that's street. dope. That's dope. When I steal that as well. What's up? What's up, guys? <laughs> Do you know what I loved about this film? Yeah, Idris didn't treat them like a boss. Like you see, when Idris gets broken out on the train, you know what I love. I love the way he puts his head on Regina's yeah. shoulder to yeah. say, Just, "Thank you, sis." Yeah. Like, and then he nods his head with Lakeith, yeah. and it's kind of like. It's love. Yeah. Um, it's not a boss. It's not yeah. Yeah. Taylor. Just... No. So what I loved about that, you kind of feel like, are they bad guys or good guys? Because yeah. they're kind of, I don't see them as a bad guy. I yeah. think they had different beliefs to the other side. And they was like, because they wanted Redwood to be a place yeah. for their community to rise up. But that's, they just had different ways about going about it. So That's the whole point of the film, right? How we just assume people are bad, bad for one deed. So the opening scene these guys are the bad guys. But really, are they the bad guys? They were the bad no, guys. When you, meet, cool. <laughs> when you meet Nat Love, the Nat Love gang, they are taking out the Crimson Hood gang in cold blood. Yes. Literally killing these human beings from afar. But we automatically, because there's a there's a few jokes and stuff, they, they're the good guys. They're the guys we like. And I love I love examining those tropes, like how we, how we, I always ask myself, when we watch, uh, uh, Bank robbery on film. We always want the bank robbers to get away. When we read about a bank heist in the in the Royal Mint has been, I remember about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, the Royal Mint has been robbed in a daring. Whoa, I don't know if the journalist wants me to follow this. I hope they don't get caught. And I always examine why we why we uh uh do we hate the government that much? But my point is I wanted to examine pretty much everything. Um, we're used to in watching these films. The reason why, when when John from Major Nat Love says, "Where's your boss?" Trudy Smith goes, "My, my boss." boss. <laughs> she doesn't have a boss. Yeah. When Nat Love says to Mary, "What make what what in my character makes you think I'd allow you to do that?" She goes, "I ain't asking for your permission." Women in this movie are not subservient. Women in any part of history have never been a subservient. But in Western, they're treated as a creature of subservience, an actual creature of subservience. I wanted to really put all of that, um, just turn all that on its head. Trudy Smith says to says to uh, Idris' character, Rufus Buck, she says, I believe in what you're doing. He went, are you loyal to me? So this place could be a mecca for all of us. I believe in what you're doing. Yeah. As long as that's so, ain't nothing I won't do to see it through. I love that. As I love that. So. Yeah. As long as that's so. Like she's not. She didn't answer. She didn't answer clear, but she made it clear she's down for the cause. That's yeah, what I, and I like a, that. It's a cause that's that's bigger bigger than them. So then, when you look at it, Nat Love, the Nat Love gang, I always used to say to myself, it's interesting. They're like Scooby Doo and the mystery that like these people coming to just ruin the plans of 
these because the whole thing is about sins of the sins of the father mm. and you become what you kill right so the story i wanted to tell is is like you're chasing this person because he killed your parents and then you meet the guy and he killed your parents because they kill his parents and then it's just one never-ending cycle and never-ending loop uh a continuous uh cycle of violence that we can all relate to well, that's what I loved about it because there ain't that when I look at my movie um, and I look at your movie it's violence and it's gangs but your one was in the yours is a western you yeah. know so the story never it doesn't it hasn't changed it hasn't you know? changed it's just all. the same world you know so um, I love that but another thing it's been a lot there's been a lot of comparisons to Quentin Tarantino with uh-huh. this movie and um Quentin Tarantino is a great director. We yeah. both respect what he's done. How do you feel about them comparisons? And considering that Quentin Tarantino, who's not black, is a big user and known for using the N-word, and a lot of people have complained that he uses it too much. Your movie, as a black man, you've never used the N-word once in the film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Justin, t- tell me about that and tell me about how the Quentin Tarantino references, how you feel about that. Like, I, you know, it's interesting. I think there's certain things you're not going to be able to avoid. Like people, Quentin made a, re- a Western in modern day. So people immediately see that. Django is not a black Western in the ancient world. There's no black cowboys and it's sla- slaves. Um, you know, and Quentin, Quentin, you know, he, he does what he does. Like the thing is, Quentin is a, is a good filmmaker. So, but to me, if someone saw like an influence from Quentin Tarantino, you to me, you'll see just as much influence in this if you look from Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, the silence in that movie and the silence that I, I um, employ in the final scene or um, or the uh, framing in Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali's Nshana and Deleu. But, but if you're alive today, someone's immediately going to say, oh, he's made a Western, it's black people, it's Quentin Tarantino. I don't necessarily agree with Quentin's usage of the of the n-word and i do I think that people but I, I just really don't don't talk about it like i do think people um excuse it they say you know why did you not use the n-word at all in, in the movie because we're not uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> i respect that <laughs> like, and and you know you could look at those movies you know and you could say it was a time people say it was a time but you know really i mean a few scenes later the kkk turn up in in say Django. Mm. Do you know when the KKK never existed? During slavery, they didn't have to. They owned black people. That's true. There was no need to cover your faces when it was law. So my point is, um, uh, I don't, I don't um, admonish at all, or um, the when people make um, uh, comparisons, because Quentin has made some great films. I think as black people, we have to do this. We ha- we do a thing called auto erase, right? Which White folks actually don't know we do. We get abused so much when we're watching these movies. We have to do this in particular scenes. Like, just erase that bit. It's like if you're Asian and you're watching Breakfast at Tiffany's. You want to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, but every time Mickey Rooney ends up on screen... <laughs> and that's what we have to do. Like, Pulp Fiction is a wicked, wicked, yeah, I, wicked, I love wicked, wicked film. And then there's Quentin, Quentin's um, cameo in it. Does that say dead storage? No, because I don't store dead and he's speaking to Samuel L. Jackson. No relationship with any black guy is is like that. It's just totally unrealistic. It's just something you wanted to do. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a make a um, tell a story um, and just have us call the N word all the way through. I'm just a different type of um, type of storyteller. But I respect him as a storyteller. Everyone's entitled to their own their own stories. You know, 
Yeah, man. Look, wait, I, I ain't got really... How long have I got? Five minutes. I ain't got bare more questions. I feel like you, you've wrapped everything up for me, man. Like, I, I think we should let the people ask what they want. But for me, look, man, as... um. I'm super. I was super inspired by the movie. Um, it's motivated me to just go even harder. I, I love the film. I love the characters. I love the music. And from one filmmaker to another, man, I'm 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 hoping my film next film gets ninety million budget as well. <laughs> but bro, I love it, man, and I'm so happy to see your success. And I hope this is just the beginning. Yeah. You know, um, thank you, bro. And also, we should know that James's next movie Don't say. is already written oh. and it's cold. I'm not gonna. Be, I'm not. It's just basically you're looking at a director of the future here. Like you're looking at a director that's about to. You know, five to ten years from now, we're gonna be talking about this this meeting when he was really kind of relatively unknown because he will be the next Tarantino in the sense of known wise. It will be that level. So, bro, well done, man. This is just the beginning. Thank, thank you, bro. I mean, just the beginning. I, you get me? I can't help but liking compliments. <laughs> you know, you earned them, bro. I don't give them out unless they're earned, and you earned them. I saw the work you put in to make that movie, man, and I watched it with pride. You get me to say, yo, that's my boy's film there. Check that out. So, Raps came on. We was on. We was, did the. We opened the London Film Festival, and, and I was doing an interview. I can't remember who. I think Associated Press or something. And I just heard, "This is the best filmmaker in Beaver." <laughs> Raps, he just bogarted the whole. Yeah, the whole, yeah. Uh, I ambushed. I ambushed his press on the red carpet, man. But that's what you do, and you're you're beaming with pride. You get me? I, I would say that that um, for me, the the takeaway from the harder they fall is, is every single character in the in the film. Was a character was based on a character that really existed. No, Every single one of them, right? That should have been one Rufus of Buck, um, Nat Love, Cherokee Bill, Gertrude Smith, Trudy Smith, Stagecoach Mary, um, Bill Pickett, Jim Beckwith, Wiley Esco. I took all of these real characters that we we'd never heard of um, before, just so people could uh, could stop the argument about did we exist in that particular moment in time. If you think about um, I'll just conclude and then you get to go. If you think about like Wyatt Earp and you ask anyone, you know, we had the movie Tombstone and Wyatt Earp. And, and if you just ask anyone, when did Wyatt Earp die? And they took a guess. They'll probably say, I don't know, 1840. Wyatt Earp died in 1929. My grandmother was alive then, right? In 1929, he died. It's crazy. Gunfight at the OK Corral, Tombstone took place in 1881. There was decades of the Old West post uh, the Emancipation Proclamation Act. So I was always like, we're all, we're all the black people. And the term cowboy, one in four cowboys was black. The term cowboy was given, was a name given to black people as a sign of almost like um, disrespect. White folks were called cowhands. So for me, I, I didn't, um, I didn't uh, reimagine the Western, Some history the old West. Hollywood reimagined it by erasing women from all the storylines and erasing all people of color. I've just kind of broadened the scope, right? I've just kind of broadened the scope and given you a more realistic view of what it was like when people were in their own in their own towns. And just so people would stop arguing with me, I just uh, got all of these these real names so people could just go uh, forward after watching the film and, and kind of just learn about these these um, characters. Well, any questions? You're, you're right in front of my eyes. There you go. Fantastic. The one thing that was really sticking with me throughout was the sound design. Uh, like when Idris gets revealed on the train, that kind of wild tiger. Like, Wicked. Wicked. Brilliant. But even 
when you're in the bars, you could almost like, like if I go home and rewatch this, I'm going to try and listen to what people are saying because yeah. it was really distinctive. How much of that was? You're actually a gangster. What's your name? Okay. What's your name? Will. Watch this. Sound design will make or break your movie, right? It will make or break your movie. Bad sound design, you cannot get, get like you can't lose it. Even if you don't know that it's bad sound design. While I was writing the script, I was like, I want the best sound designer in the world to do this, to do this movie. I was looking up. Who is Christopher Nolan's sound designer? Who is Christopher Nolan's sound designer? And you know, it took me so long to do this movie. Christopher Nolan kept doing film up from the Dark Knight, Inception. Man, this sound designer, Richard King. That's what I'm saying. Netflix, man. I swear they kind of. So when before you you make a decision, Netflix would give you like they'll give you like a bunch of people, right? And then you'll go through them, DPs, whatever. It didn't even get to that when it came to sound design. I was like, I want Richard King. I did not open their list of people, of suggestions. I want Richard King. I don't care how expensive he is. I mean, I want Richard King. And um, and they just embraced him. And look, I don't know, he might be busy. Christopher Nolan's working on something else. He's just finishing up Tenet. Like, he may be busy. Could you just put me on the phone with him? Next minute, me and Richard King are on the phone. I gave this guy. Remember what I was talking about Regina King? I'm sure I probably said the same thing. Peace to the black queen, Richard King. It's basically the same name. I just had to change Regina. Maybe I said white. Um, but I gave it to him. Richard, what I'm doing with this person. To me, he was just as important as my, my role in it. And on the train, he made the train breathe like you can hear it like through the you hear the metal i do this little trick right when idris gets off the train when rufus buck comes out of the the train he he does this and the screen swells just a little bit you can hear the metal bend and when it goes back to normal on the exhale it goes goes back to like Richard King is amazing. They work on the Warner Brothers lot. And he it's just it's literally just watching a whole different movie. You think your movie's good in post, then it goes to sound design stage. And you have someone someone like um Richard basically who's just an artist then then um uh my friend you you had a question? Well, the ending um you know with the twist it's the reveal that they're actually yeah. brothers that just took it to another level you know it's thank you brother um, thank you when they're having that out and i didn't see that coming i just thought all right again there's gonna be a standoff but when the final kind of conflict in the film is the the main bad guy actually saying, yeah you know what, brother. yeah that just took it somewhere else and it thank you well enough actually yeah um, is it we cried on set Really, one in the film, I wanted to turn all the showdowns on their head, right? So, count down from five, five, four, three. Uh, I, I know, right? Like I want to turn every conflict on their head. You see, all the men. You remember, to, like they'll they'll disempower, like they'll like disempower all women in in. In Western, you'll see all the men having a gunfight, fighting with guns, and it was the two women that look at each other. 
throw the guns away. Let's go. Like that's to me, that's the women I know, not the women that I've been given in, in the West. And the end, I had that end in, in the beginning. Like they they these guys are brothers, and it is about it is about the cycle of violence, but also to turn the showdown again on its head. We think there's gonna be a gunfight and it's just dialogue. And you have two grown men, and I can't recall where I've seen that before, especially like black men, two enemies, two grown men meeting the protagonist and the antagonist, whichever way you want to look at them. And they meet and they're both just crying, talking to each other. I wanted to um, show the end of that, um, that story with, with um, heart. So it was there in the beginning. Incidentally, with Barrington, Barrington Levy is the guy that goes, and I was like eight years old and I used to listen to that song. I'm broad, I'm broad, I'm broader than Broadway. When he's doing, I used to hear horses galloping. If ever there was a melody for horses galloping, it's Barrington Levy. And so I, I rebuilt that, that music and I wanted him singing on the score. I wanted voices on the score. People think, like, like people go, and he's put modern music on the Western. If you watch Rio Bravo with John Wayne and Dean Martin, and you know Dean Martin pops up in the Western, there's going to be a song. And he's, he's in jail, and he's like, my rifle, pony, and me. Oh, and he sings a song called My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. If you go to the Old West and you meet, like, Jesse James, he ain't heard no song that genre before, My Rifle, Pony. Or if you listen to, to Rawhide, the music for Rawhide, or any of those Westerns. Every movie, but if you, but 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 th but think, but but think about this, right? So, like, what Ennio Morricone done when he turned score on its head or in a fistful of dollars? He didn't have money for an orchestra, so he would use an electric guitar and voices. Ding 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 ding. They win. They win. Even the singing with the wind is in an Italian accent. Not only did Jesse James, Calamity Jane, Wild Bill Hickok, all these people not hear ever of the electric guitar, the majority of them didn't even hear of electricity. Those, none of those Hollywood music actually had cowboy music beneath them, within them. They were just the, the modern music of their time. So I wanted to give The Harder They Fall its own signature. And if you listen to Dub, Dub is really close to like what Ennio and that was doing. It would be like, jing, 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 jing. Then I'll put orchestra over it. Jing, 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 jing. It's really cinematic. It's just that no one from that world does movies on a broad, on a big scale in the West, seemingly, which is crazy because that music is a goldmine of, uh, of cinematic, uh, cinematic landscape. Um, as it were, or soundscape. It's a goldmine to, to dwell from. So I was recreating and, and um, writing original music, but I was going into like my dub bag for the, for the, um, for the score. Hence Barrington Levy or Dennis Brown when they first ride into town. Thank you. Um, going back to the last scene, I found myself shouting, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Kill him. Kill him. Yeah. 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 You're like James Lasseter. <laughs> um, what, did you have a feeling you wanted to make people feel like that? Yeah. Or no, listen to him. Don't kill him. What? what I, I, wanted, I wanted both. Because you know why? When I'm writing it, the film, 
I don't know whose side I'm on. Yeah. Right? I don't know whose side I'm on. <sighs> I don't want to say this out loud. But Rufus, the Rufus Buck gang are about progress. Right? They're about progress. Like, building the town, it's not about Rufus. As he said, it's Redwood ain't a dream. I don't dream. They're about progress. The Nat Love gang are on a vendetta. And as the author, I know the ending. Right? So I, so in that scene, it's almost like my heart breaks. In that particular scene, my heart breaks for Nat Love and everything he's going to experience, right? But, and everything he's going to, all the knowledge he's just about to receive. But I'm kind of with Rufus. Like, you're my brother and your dad, who you think was a pastor, killed my mum and was a foul drunk, which means he killed both my parents. He killed the dad, the idea of the dad I was supposed to have, and he killed and he murked my mum in cold blood. So it's almost as if um, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't want Rufus to, that I wanted, I wanted him to be, to be heard. But I know that the audience would kind of flip between the two because I flipped between the two. Were you about to say something? I just wondered if in the first scene you ever considered him only killing the father and not the mother because the mother wasn't guilty of anything. I just wondered. Until the prequel. Only joking. Um, uh, no, what I, what I wanted to do is is thank you, thank you, brother. Um, what, what I wanted to do was the, the reason why I wanted both of them um, dead is because Nat Love grows up as an outlaw. Whereas if his mum was still with him, maybe she could have shepherded him in a in a. Um, uh, yeah, they could have. Yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to. I just wanted to show um, the the reason why I kind of always had the idea of him killing both both parents is one just to show the merciless and 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 tyranny of this guy, and also show what happens to a child when everything is is. Um, ripped away from him so I, so I never really had one of them um standing I never really had one of them standing um after and also like I think with westerns they were always harsh when they put the murder game down you go, oh my god why is everyone kind of getting it so I wanted to kind of keep that tradition I don't know if you have you ever seen Once Upon a Time in the West with Henry Fonda man what he does at the beginning of that movie and he sticks the harmonica in, in the boy's mouth who grows up to be Charles Bronson and has and hangs his old brother and makes him stand on child on, on young on the young boy's shoulders. And then one of them goes, What about the boy? You're gonna leave him alive on another scene, but you're gonna leave him alive. Uh uh say his name was uh Colonel Ratman. You're gonna leave the boy alive, Colonel Ratman? And Henry Fonda goes, Well, now that you've said my name. And looks at the kid like what that is just stone cold and uncompromising. I really wanted for that, even for you asking that question, is the reason why I wanted to kind of both of them had to go. So we start the movie like, oh my God, like maybe she won't die. And that's an actress called Dewanda Wise from um, uh, Spike Lee's TV show. She's got to have it. She's an amazing actress as well. So her tears and the, just the fear, like really um, kind of amp up that scene for me. You know what I mean? Any more? Let me just take that last question. Yeah. 
just wondering, you mentioned that um, you had the music that you produced involved in the rehearsal process as yeah. well. And I was wondering like how you sort of employed that. Yeah, well, I, 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 I never say action, right? So when you hear the music, uh, just go. So I would have live musicians in the rehearsal process playing uh, the music that I... <laughs> that I, that I made, but I'll, I just have like like Netflix, Netflix budget, but no, but but I would have like I I wouldn't know, <laughs> but 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 I I would have like live live musicians and and also like I wake up and I create until I go to sleep, right? I just create to the chagrin of my wife, right? I just keep um. Uh, creating so so I'm I'm almost like composing as I'm rehearsing because Regina would do something different like she'll come with an accent Ooh, like I never thought a character would speak like that this is amazing and you so you hear different things so I need all of my rehearsals filmed and when I've got the music playing in the background I would watch it afterwards and tweak and make changes so everything is is um is, you know, like music and film are really the same thing. A screenplay would have three acts, kind of. A song has three acts, three verses. Two verses in the middle eight, it's three verses. Like, they're really close to each other. We separate them as humans, but they're really um, close to each other. And in my head, they're the same thing. It's almost like one long um, opera, so to, so to speak. You know what I mean? But thank you guys, man. Thank you so much for being a part of the movie. And 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 um, I'm glad that you know I mean, we can enjoy this together. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>